Hello, Harja, it's Falcha Gablurni Bellagish, Patria Lumisul, Oknosa Bellagis, Aaron and Shaw, Golashed in a Halskala Polyclea. Hello, folks, and a very warm welcome to Blurni Bellagish, the monthly podcast from the National Folklore Collection here in University College Dublin. I'm Claire Doohan. I'm Johnny Doohan. And each month we'll be taking you in hand and leading you through the folklore furrow to unearth some of the more unusual and perhaps lesser known aspects of the Irish folk tradition. Now, before we set off, we just wanted to take this opportunity actually to tip the proverbial cap to some lovely loyal listeners who've, um, who we've encountered since our last episode. From surgeons in Canada to knitters in Dublin to a mysterious stranger in Mumbai as well, if our statistics are anything to go by. Um, I'm quite curious about him or her. We're really pleased that our ramblings are finding an audience actually and kind of hopefully helping you to pass a pleasing hour as you go about your daily business. So thanks to everyone who's taken the time to get in touch with thoughts and feedback. We really appreciate it, don't we, Johnny? We do. We do. It's a lovely pleasure to read, yeah. Absolutely. So do please keep them coming by phone, email, pop in, send us your thoughts in any form that you wish. And we love hearing from you. And we might even try and touch on kind of some of the suggested themes in the coming episodes. So turning our attention now to this month's theme, and we'll be looking at house luck, or Euthi, or Rethi, as it's known in Irish. Those acts or omissions, things actively done or willfully left undone in order to draw luck and prosperity to a person's domestic dwelling or home and to cast out ill fortune from the threshold. So it's a very basic idea since man first sought shelter from the elements and protection from those physical threats in his environment, humans have striven for a corner of the world to call their own in some form for millennia. And this search for a home of one's own is a universal theme and what drew us really to this little curious section of the archive and why we wanted to look at house luck. This impulse that comes from a very natural desire to secure the safety of our dwelling and the prosperity, well-being and good luck of its occupants. And how that is achieved will be today's focus and one we hope will have wide appeal. And as myself and Johnny always find, once we start investigating a topic, we can have go down the rabbit hole, don't we, Johnny, and just are overwhelmed by the breadth and depth of material held here in the archive. So before we set off, we're just going to give you a bit of a rough overview of our agenda for the day. So we'll kickstart with a brief overview from Johnny on material culture, the overarching canopy under which, I suppose, dwellings and human settlements sit in the study of folk tradition. And then we'll jump into the customs and beliefs which existed and which might still exist. We'll explore that that we put in place to secure luck for our dwelling. So there's more than enough there already to kind of keep us going for the hour. So we really hope you enjoy it. And I will probably hand you over now to Johnny to start adding a bit of colour on material culture while, while we're still young. Yes. Um, yes, it's a hugely interesting area of folk tradition and one that I thought when I first started studying folklore, I thought, oh, this would be kind of... Maybe it won't be necessary. It won't be interesting. This thing, mm. material culture or vernacular architecture, but it was yeah. amazing. I started study, having these lectures um, on the different classifications of the house or house types in Ireland. Oka Campbell is someone that we'll mention a bit today. A Swedish folklorist who did a study in nineteen thirty six with Kevin Danaher, who's a kind of great forefather in the sense of the study of material culture in Ireland, and one of uh, uh, several. But um, he he mentioned that something along the lines that from the Carpathians in the east to Ireland in the west and from Norway to Spain, kind of that the whole study of, of, uh, of material culture in Europe in its broadest sense really couldn't be unlocked and understood fully without 
knowing the Irish condition. Yeah. And that again, in the same way that lots of stories existed, that, that kind of, or customs that were still running as kind of living waters in Ireland at the end of the 19th and, and into the 20th century, that had dried up in Europe and elsewhere due to the Industrial Revolution and so on. The same was true of material culture in many ways. So these people were, were keenly aware of that. And, we were a little laboratory for them, weren't we? Totally, in our, in yeah, yeah. And we have as well, for anyone who, who's interested in this sort of material, to come in and look. And, and, and we have all of these beautiful drawings. Again, we're talking yeah. about material culture and, and you lose a certain element of it when you don't have the kind of visual component. They took these beautiful sketches and drawings of, of, of house types and so on, that are, and even implements and things that are... That are uh, that you can, all, you can look at here. We're actually doing some work at the moment. They're hugely effective, actually, as you said, because we've spent the last month reading a lot of descriptions of houses mm. and the material culture involved there. And, and as you said, you can very easily and quickly lose sight of the visuals because you can't see it, whereas the beautiful drawings by um, Oki Campbell and Kevin Danahar, mm. it just immediately you see it and you understand, oh, direct entry dwelling, yep. oh, roped thatch all of a sudden it's there's, there a, there's a huge resonance and there's a beauty and a simplicity to it as well that that comes across that mm. um, can't but have an emotional response in my case at least oh this is the feeling mascara all over the place all over the table <laughs> i can't even read my notes and suddenly we're only 10 minutes in and um, but say to explain even to listeners i suppose as, as a broad overview which is i guess worth doing in the context of uh, of these podcasts and explaining to people about folk tradition in its broadest sense mm. when we talk about material culture it'll be no surprise that we're, we're talking about kind of visible physical and built aspects of, of our folk tradition so like i was mentioning there from tools and implements to everything to crafts costumes to recipes and, and more but like i was saying these reveal or tend to reveal more or much about the spiritual and symbolic aspects of uh, of our culture and our forebears as a people and also us in the present and um, so the ways, I suppose, that our forebears engage with, with the implements and items that they use or that they build mm. reveals a lot about their, their kind of approach to the natural world, basically. And so today, what we're looking at is a term we've mentioned already, vernacular architecture. And people might be thinking, what the hell are you talking about? And you mentioned That's true, actually. We're so used to it. And we we, are. we've run over it without thinking now. Vernacular it comes from the Latin vernaculus, which means native. So when we talk about vernacular architecture, we're talking about native mm. architecture. And within that, I suppose given that we're talking about kind of uh, folk culture or folk tradition, we're looking at expressions of culture that are traditional, informal, communal, um, orally expressed and, or shown by customer example, and that they're anonymous. And in their form, they're variable and stable. So you see variations of a stable form over a large area. So that goes up for, for stories or songs or customs or beliefs, but it also goes for, for implements, tools and house types and so on and so forth. You can see there's a kind of connection between abstract and more material aspects of culture. Mm-hmm. So when we talk about um, vernacular architecture we're using these kind of defining characteristics which aren't totally satisfactory but we can use them broadly to kind of to define these these constructions and traditional dwellings so in the sense of vernacular architecture there's no set author or architect to whom we can attribute a particular type of dwelling or a particular uh, feature in, in a dwelling mm. they, they, they kind of they're, they're more communal in that sense which is another um, kind of characteristic secondly we're dealing with an informal architecture so this is an architecture in which we can't go to look at the blueprints for a house or state records or state papers or planning permission or any of that sort mm-hmm. of stuff. And it's worth bearing in mind as well, planning permission in Ireland, I think it only came into being in the 60s. I believe so. So it's a, it's a very, very recent um, kind of thing with this overarching kind of uh, bureaucratic approach to, to planning zones and so on, mm-hmm. as opposed to a more natural response to the environment that, that had um, existed for, for thousands of years prior to that. And that's it. That's one of the things I think we'll touch on so often, as even Kevin Danaher says, his three points, that tradition and customs respond to three things. Tradition, 
the environment and external impact. Yeah. And it's that idea of responding to our environment that's always what comes up in folk tradition. Time and again. Isn't it? Yeah. Kind of, and that's interestingly what we'll see in the customs, how they vary across the country. It's always harking back to what is available, what is the driving mm. force in that kind of community. Yeah. It's always the environment and kind of responding to the world, the natural and unseen world. Yeah, it's, bo- it's born out of, it's the thing that it needs to be borne in mind, the folk tradition uh, is stems from and is born of the natural world and man's response to nature and man being in nature. Um, and in a way then that you see the antithesis of that in, in modernity, um, where you have the replacing of the local with the global, or this kind yeah. of homogenizing of, of culture, where you can Absolutely. be in, in replacing a place with non-place and so on as well. We'll get into that, that sort of material as we get on, I suppose. But, um, but yeah, there are, there are no blueprints or state records set for these types of dwellings that, that we're talking about. And so for the likes of Oka Campbell and Kevin Danaher, in their study of these house types, which they did, they traveled all over the country studying them and taking drawings and making records and so on. And they then had to conduct fieldwork, which is an essential part of, mm. of the collecting of folk tradition as well. So we're looking at an informal uh, type of architecture. Similarly, as you mentioned there, the hand of tradition can be seen in all aspects of the building, from the choosing of a site. Um, so to look at both the kind of physical and metaphysical kind of qualities of a certain area, and then to choose a site in accordance with, with, with tradition, the choosing of materials, and local and regional styles that would then develop in response to the climatic or topographical or social conditions and, and the environment, as you mentioned as well. And then these methods of construction are passed on communally and by co- shown by customary example and are kind of oral in that sense. So you have anonymity, informality, tradition, um, variability, stability in the form, and then the kind of communal and, and oral nature of how these things are, are expressed and shared, basically. So they kind of fit into folk tradition in, in that sense, in a way that, um, again, people mightn't think, like I was mentioned, when, when they think of, of folklore, they often think of stories and more abstract things. And it's worth, I suppose, describing some of the main features of what we're talking about in the dwelling house, although it's slightly unsatisfactory to do it, as opposed to just showing images, it's much, it's much more kind of quick. It comes across in, in um, greater impact, I suppose, when you can see the image. But generally, it's worth doing, I think. When you see the, the traditional house, it's generally a rectangular building, usually one unit deep between the front and the rear walls, windows and doors on the side walls. The roof is steeply uh, sloped is in order to allow rain to run off, which is a prime concern. Well, this life. is Ireland. It is in this country. Um, the chimney stack is carried on the roof ridge. So it doesn't, it doesn't protrude, protrude to the side or other kind of parts of the house. It's always on the ridge of, of the roof, which is an important part in, in how the, these types of houses are classi- classified later on. And it's located internally along the centre axis of the house. So the hearth is the kind of the functional and social centre of the home, the fireplace, the kitchen. And that's always in the centre axis of the house. And extension tended to be in the horizontal in rural dwellings of the past, so that you'd see houses kind of gradually getting longer in the line. Yeah, that's true. Then more well-off kind of big farming houses would extend in the vertical and another floor be put on. But often you'd find these other houses kind of additional rooms being put on in line, whatever. Um, and then the roof was usually covered in a layer of vegetation or straw, uh, which we know as thatch. But then depending on what materials were available, you might have slate also used in, in areas where that, that material was common. Um, Oka Campbell, again, that Swedish ethnographer who was here in 1936, he described, what did he say about the, the, he said, the Irish peasant house never stands out in bold relief against its background, but melts into it even as a tree or a rock. Built of stone, clay, sods, grass and straw brought from the vicinity, the house harmonises with the landscape to which it belongs. Wherever the old building traditions are maintained, its features are of a fine simplicity. So, and you can see that. And there's a, there's a natural kind of, um, I don't know, a beautiful aesthetic, I think, and a simplicity to these houses where they are literally born of the natural environment yeah. basically and, and the materials that are taken from them 
are taken to the natural environment and that travel was difficult in many ways you couldn't just um ha- ship kind of goods well, over, over large distances and so on the account of that as you would travel the country you'd see enormous local regional variations within a theme um, on on the traditional house toys but all of them would respond to the varying kind of nuances and specificities of the of the area in which they're being built or whatever which is a nice um, guide that i wish some planners would actually adopt more oh. because although beautiful like i'm not saying i want to live in a small cottage by the seaside well i'd, I'd love that <laughs> but um you know that sense of all these yes beautiful modern um no claire i hate all that stuff well some of them are very beautiful like they're very striking so but then when you see them in the middle of the countryside you just think it doesn't quite gel yeah <clears throat> no i'd be i'd be inclined to agree i well perhaps i mean if it, like you have, like I was mentioned earlier, the replacing of the local with the global. Mm. You have the, the shipping of goods uh, all over the world. You have, uh, I suppose, the, you have kind of mass production of goods. You have um, economic zones, shopping centres, car parks, enormous roadways, the replacing of place with non-place. You have the replacing of kind of local, traditional, indigenous information replaced with the architect, the engineer, the graphic yeah. designer. You have these kind of brutalist towers and slabs of concrete mm. that are then replaced with towers of glass. You have this kind of hellscape that emerges okay. in the in the urban environment. It, and, and crimes against the human spirit, Claire. Crimes Don't you against hold beauty. Back, Johnny, you let it out. Oh, no, they're, they're, some some of these kind of the, these architectural um, constructions are like like kind of glass blocks parachuted into a field or something yeah, like that that bear no in no relation to the to the heritage or tradition of the people mm. dwelling in them. Um, and which is somehow kind of viewed as, as progress in some sense, where you have thousands of years of a, a, a kind of... Kevin Donher described the traditional house as becoming kind of a reservoir of spiritual and cultural material... or Sorry, a spiritual and cultural material reservoir, basically. Okay. Um, that then is, is... That existed for thousands of years, been handed down by our forefathers kind of in, in, in this kind of succession, whatever, uh, and then is... Uh, uh, kind of replaced and replicated with the kind of useless, apparent utilitarian aesthetic whatever yeah which right, is it's, the sad it's, fact that he's not altogether on inaccurate no he's, he's not it's, it's it's grim so so things are kind of are i suppose are easier and and a certain kind of quality is made you know or, or comfort or whatever but um i want things to be i want everything to be beautiful and very difficult i suppose um but there's there, beauty in the suffering johnny there is there is and it can re- redeem itself <laughs> with with meaning and so on and so forth but the the um the the i suppose the 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 erosure or erosion of of that traditional information, um, and it's replacing in the modern context with a more homogenized kind of global expression or whatever, um, is something I think to be lamented in many ways. Mm. I, 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 I think there would be people who would agree with you. I, I, At least taking an aim for a happy balance. Well, you know. I'll be the diplomat, Johnny, while you be the dictator. No, no, ah, that sounds like a plan. That will do. <laughs> I'll take that. Yeah. Excellent. And on that note. Um, should we draw in now on the search for a site? Indeed, yeah, an important part of um, of of the choosing of I suppose of any yeah the space in which a dwelling was to be kind of constructed. Absolutely, because if it's going to be there in its permanent state for generations, really, and to be passed on between generations within the family, it's mm. hugely important to make the right decision. So nowadays, when we think about securing a site, I suppose those practical concerns that we have are costs proximity to local amenities, scenic vistas, everybody loves a good landscape in front of them, and also potential neighbours, something I'm always concerned about when I move. 
Um, and while such practical material considerations would certainly have occupied our predecessors, there was also, as you were saying, Johnny, this kind of spiritual and symbolic element to their preparations also, and the likely interaction of their decisions with the unseen world as much as the natural environment would have played a role in their decision-making, wouldn't it? Yeah. It was very much them wanting to secure the best outcome for their actions with a view to the powers that are unseen in the world. Yeah. And so I suppose this is where, when we jumped into our archive, looking at the selection of the site, it, it was just overwhelming in the curious little elements and items that we discovered, which it's worth just kind of going through some of the more interesting absolutely. ones that yeah, might absolutely. not be known to people. Um, so one of the things, shall I just choose one and we'll crack on with that you were not to build on or through any pathway that might be used by supernatural beings. Um, as Kevin Danaher himself writes beautifully, an old pathway or track must be respected and not obstructed as those who once walked it in life might still wish to do so in death. Mm. It, there is there's the idea that I suppose that that these spaces need to be or space needs to be navigated according to the physical and the metaphysical or that you need to kind of choose your site in accordance with you know material and symbolic concerns as well I suppose mm. um, and yeah the idea is that we're, we're essentially in one level we're sharing the world with the dead and also sharing it with the fairies and the mm. fairies of course not manifesting in the kind of literary Victorian Tinkerbell kind of idea mm. but as these uh, nature spirits essentially who are often bound up with the world of the dead and who are a parallel community to our own who can kind of suddenly interfere with our world who aren't morally kind of evil or, or whatever but can be uh, malicious but can also be helpful and are, are dangerous overall and so yeah there's a there's a lot of um a, a considerable body of material exists in folk traditions surrounding the idea of the fairy path for example or the fairy pass mm. which is a road an invisible roadway that it moves across the land that the fairies or the dead uh, use at night and if you happen to build on that um, well you'll you'll suffer for it and um, you'll have disturbances in the house or if a barn or such is is, is built and holes will be knocked through it until I remember reading an example from Newfoundland where um, again the ferries made the jump over to Newfoundland with Irish emigration to that place and we all like to travel Johnny we do including the ferries um, and so this uh, this gentleman is building a barn and he's having uh, all sorts of kind of noises and disturbances in there at night until a neighbour tells him to build a little door two little doors in it which he does and then everything is fine so the ferries can use these doors and kind of pass through that's fantastic there's um. An account here I can pl play from um, recorded in 1969 from the sound archive. So in the context of, of uh, what we're looking at today, I went through some of these tape recordings. And this is Bob Riley from Kinnegad in, in Westmeath. And he's recorded by Jim Delaney and Leo Corduff. And he's describing the building of a piggery. Uh, so this is where kind of an outhouse where pigs be kept. Uh, but, but the idea is the same. The idea is the same. And it's built on a fairy pass. So he describes some of the, the, uh, the problems that arose in that situation. I remember... Well, I, I do it for me. My mother often told me. I was only six months old when my father died. But he lived above in the quarry. And he built a piggery. Now, you know what a piggery yes. is. And uh, he got up this morning, and the whole inn was gone out of it. And one wall was gone. My father went in and told my mother. And, and then she says, I don't know what she says, sweetheart. Well, maybe somebody knocked it down. And just all, he built it up again that day. And the next morning he got up, 
went out and it was levelled again. And he ran it for three mornings. And he went to Connor Sheverton. The ferryman. The ferryman, that's who well, you know who I'm talking yes. about. He said, it's a Paddy. Paddy was his name, Paddy really. Paddy, he says, he don't want to build the. Don't build anymore, he says. That's a pass for the fairies. And he says, they'll knock it every time. Don't build it anymore. Shifted over that. And that's when my father shifted the piggery. The piggery, you know what I'm saying. There you are. Don't build over the fairy pass. What Just, else? And they become progressively more violent, don't they, in folk tradition, as you ignore them. So you kind of have mm. recollections in the archives that we found where at first it's perhaps noises in the night, maybe some cutlery moving about. Then you've got animals dying. Mm. And then we have really sad recollections of children in a home dying and them associating that bad luck with the fact that this house and this family had chosen to build in or to obstruct a fairy pass. Yeah. So it's, it's those stages of um, violence that yeah. people believed in. It's a huge taboo in, in tradition to interfere with these spaces. Mm. And particularly, okay, so in the one sense, you're, you're kind of accidentally uh, interfering with a plane across the earth upon which the spirits travel. So it's, it's a slightly maybe more, although it might get more and more um, of a problem as time goes on, it's somewhat more benign in its mm. initial expression or whatever. But you'll also find that, say, there are a lot of, a huge amount of fact of narratives relating the quote-unquote, the kind of the outsider who comes into a town and doesn't know the ways of the place and he ploughs a fairy fort on his land to make himself more arable land. Mm-hmm. So a fairy fort being actually just one of these mounds or old kind of earthwork hills that are kind of um, from the prehistoric or the Bronze Age or, or whatever. Um, and an individual who does that will often suddenly have all their livestock die, or all their family die, they'll die, the house will burn down and even their relatives will, will kind of suffer. So there's an enormous, but, but it's often used, there's a kind of, the community say, "Oh, tell the story about itself," but it's always the outsider who comes in and doesn't and, and doesn't, doesn't understand, as opposed to one of our own. Generally, anyway, um, but yeah, you have that idea of kind of breaking a taboo, and also you have to bear in mind, I suppose, that another thing that Oka Campbell mentions about the island of Ireland that it's been severely, I mean, severely is the wrong word, but intensely cultivated for an enormous period of time since man um, stopped becoming a hunter gatherer and moved to being more of a kind of an agriculturalist. Yeah. You're, it's only up in the high portions of the mountains or at the extreme fringes of the, around the coast where you have a more uh, purely kind of uh, an environment where nature is in its full force in, in this island. And uh, uh, the rest of the country largely having bear, bearing the mark of, of human hands in some, way, some way, in some way, shape or form. And so there's the idea that these old burial mounds need to be kind of left alone. And an enormous amount of them are in perfect condition all over the country because no one will... Uh, go near them even to the present day there's even I was going to say a, a somewhat passive sense of tradition but it's actually quite active that people wouldn't interfere with these spaces you wouldn't um, uh, destroy these these kind of spaces or if they would they would do so at their at their, at their own peril essentially Absolutely. yeah um, but as far as the kind of the choosing of a site that was one of the main concerns that that you weren't interfering with the place where the dead were kind of roving about or the fairies were, mm-hmm. were, were ambling around there's um, another piece I could give here from in 1979 uh, recorded from Peter Tierney, and he's in the townland of Fox and Geese, which is just in, in southwest Dublin between Clondalk and, and Drimnet. And he's talking about uh, the bad luck associated with building on a, on a ferry pathway. If you pass, if you cross that path or put a fence in that path, mm. you know what I mean? You put, you 
for the fence of the path. This is the old papers of me grandmother was telling me this. You the not look. Now where was the place supposed to be? Gallonstown, over here. Oh, yeah. Fast side the canal. Mm. Bring us up to Tauber Hill. Mm. Heading on back into the darken again. And that was fairies that was there? All fairies. Well, that was in them days. So that's the fairies in, in Dublin. You can see the variation across communities, mm. but yet the, the theme is the, the same. The same basic yeah. theme is there. Yeah, yeah. Um, so I suppose when a site was being chosen, there were uh, different ways then as well to tell if this place was being used or if it was safe. And this is crucial, the, the to-do list for checking, wasn't it? Yes, it was. And there was, there was a variety of different, um, different methods to that, that were employed. Um, one of the common ones that you see was to, having chosen a site to leave at the four corners of the proposed site to leave uh, piles of stones. Mm. So three little piles of stones or five or whatever on top of one another overnight. And if when you return the next day, the stones were knocked, then it's being used basically by... Move along. You don't build there. And you have to keep trying until, until, you, do, until you have somewhere... Um, and it's the same with stakes. There were a few um, mm. builders who spoke about putting stakes in the four corners. And again, just that idea. If they were there in the morning, unharmed, right. it was fair enough to go ahead. If not... That's funny. I never, I never read that, that variant in the same thing. Yeah. Mm. Where you can mark the space and leave nature to it. Exactly. And depending on how it responds to it, then you take that as a symbol. Do not build in this place. Basically. Absolutely. Um, that was that was a um, yeah one one of the particularly kind of a, a common practices. Um, and there was the florin coin as well, wasn't there? Yeah, the florin is an old old English coin. I think. Yes, yeah. which is a good point to make because we in Ireland know the Irish florin, which came in much later, where you've got the salmon on the front and the harp on the back. Mm. So that's not the one we mean. We mean, as you said, the. Um, that which came across the, the, uh, and it had the cross on the back. The English farm apparently yeah. it had the coat of arms arranged in the shape of a cross. Or something. I haven't actually seen one. Sometimes like, a cross would be carved into a coin yeah, on the back as the well same effect. And, and put in. Um, but the idea that that kind of that um, that by burying the sentiment some form of protection would be given to the house. Mm. That again is a hugely common and still to this day the idea of kind of burying something in the foundations in order to, to protect the house. Um, so it, we can have, see examples of that in coins, but also religious medals, um, and as we'll see in later kind of accounts as well, all manner of different, um, um, and some more slightly sinister. Absolutely, this is the area in this particular topic that I particularly liked. But before we go, would you mind sharing your anecdote from Mayo, where you oh, were actually yeah. there in person? Which is yeah, there's also well one of the one of the the having built a house, one of the kind of taboos. Um, I suppose surrounds again. It's it's this how the symbolic and the material kind of interact. There's the saying, the proverb in Irish, "Unteus large naia a sheer as a tach or chorakshe fal sheer as a tach." He who is stronger than God would extend his house to the west. So this is one of those things where like you hear this proverb and like right, that means no. Like, I don't know what you're talking about. I know what, the all the words mean. I don't know. I don't know what you're on about. Um, but in the context of of kind of um, well, not just Irish folk tradition, but in broader kind of European. Uh, folk tradition, the idea, I suppose, of the directions having a certain force or a certain essence of their own was particularly common, a particularly old idea. So West is typically associated in tradition with the, with the notion of, of death mm. and the other world and the setting sun and so on and so forth. And so having built your house, um, to extend it in that direction, to push in a westward direction, is to kind of perhaps, it could be interpreted as provoking the forces or provoking... Uh, death in a mm. sense or invoking it in some sense or just kind of 
um, manifesting that that essence basically in some way shape or form so there was a, a church in county mayo that was up in in Cadruhaig in the in the there in in, um, in in mayo in a beautiful part of the country but near there there's a church in belderic belderic and uh, belderic and th- you can see online i'll post in the description in soundcloud a link to this church a picture of it because i found a picture of it online there is um on the western face of the church building was begun by a new parish priest who arrived there and it was on the western side and he had no kind of i suppose notion or, or idea of the of the traditional prescriptions and taboos in this regard and, and suggested that an extra kind of face be built onto the church in, in, in a westerly extension and the people in the area um reacted to this and and rejected it and kind of explained that you can't do that especially mm-hmm. with the church of all, of all places so building had just begun, but it was immediately ceased. But now when you pass the church on the western side from the road, you can see there's just this architrave that remains, this little arch stuck onto the wall where building started. And as you were saying, it looks like they just ran out of money or something. It does, yeah. But it was, it's kept there, so it, it remains there. It wasn't kind of knocked off the building, but the building uh, wasn't extended in that direction. So you can see a kind of uh, a symbolic expression of... Uh, this kind of spiritual belief largely in, in a taboo against extending a building or particularly a holy site in a certain direction that no good will come of that mm-hmm. and so the local people in the area know this the, the priest didn't know this and then it was duly informed this is what's happening you can see as well the tension between i suppose more kind of traditional expressions of of belief in a sense that there's nowhere in the in the kind of um tradition canon traditional canon of the catholic church that mm-hmm. this would be kind of uh, oh you can't do this as, as a ritual or whatever yeah. but it manifests very strongly in that area um, and to the point now where you can see uh, as you drive past this this um, kind of failed building that, that or yeah so the church is still used but there's just this architrave stuck on the side wall it looks bizarre I love um, it though because as you said without the oral tradition that would just be lost in the mists of time totally what what is this why is it there yeah exactly, yeah, exactly. Mm-hmm. this is the sense of even for, why even if we don't have a sense of tradition it's just it's just uh, a piece of plaster on the side of a wall mm. or it's just an, it's just a coin under a house mm. you don't have there's no meaning behind it Absolutely. and that's why material culture shows us gives us great insight into those more kind of spiritual beliefs largely that, that our forebears held but i'll put a photograph of that in the in the under the sound text so Dude. people can see it for themselves the bizarre and strange little um, uh, aspect you know that again and also to bear in mind that these things still manifest in many ways mm. you know um but yeah in choosing a site the idea of putting a coin or something under it is particularly particularly common and um, there's a, a, another recording here from 1980 and this is a fellow Butt McGuinness and he's a fine name and he's describing how, uh, how money would be buried under the house for luck and depending on the person's means the, the, oh, the type of coin so this is um, him describing that and were there any traditions when you were building a house about um, let's say incorporating something into the clay for good luck or putting a stone at the corner or oh, they, they, they used to always do that anyway which was something threw into the foundation. Yeah, like what? Do you remember? Well, even if it was only, according to your mains. Yeah. I'd say there could be a half a sovereign or two into a good many of them. Oh, I see. Yeah. Yeah. Always a bit of money. Yeah. Nice. And that would go into the foundations. And put that in for luck. Oh, I see. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, we got that Okay, so that was Butt McGuinness from Rush in North County, Dublin, describing money being buried under the house. That was recorded in 1980. And Matty Seaver as well, this is a great man altogether. I love if you listen to just We hear him a lot in the archive. He's wonderful. Oh, he's fantastic. Um, he was born in 1895, and this is him in 1980, uh, discussing how, how crosses were often hung in the house for protection. Something we can talk about later with different effigies and so on as well. What kind of things did you do to make sure that you'd have good luck in the house? 
Well, there was people do you see. Well, it's, it's a good look in the house was. I don't know if there's a hole. There used to be a, a little a holy picture of our Lord right over the door as it as it come in. And it was always there, a sacred hat. Yes, well, they allowed, they'd have that hanging over the door and that for, for, for look. But people, do you see, long ago, now outside in the stable and the like, they used to hang up a medal mm-hmm. inside on the door for look, for to keep away disease from cattle. Yeah. They had a great, the old people had a great, great taste for that. Did you ever hear anything about Bridget's crosses in, in the buyer for the cattle? Well, yes, the, the, the peop- there was people had had a cross that's hanging up, whether it be cattle. Yes, was this the, the people believed in that. Was this Bridget's crosses? Well, I don't know. But uh, the people hung hung up uh, medals and things like that in the thing. The, them crosses could be hung up there and could be there stuck in the raft or there nobody would ever know. Maybe the person was dead and gone and it was, it was still there. Yeah. One of the ways as well that a house, that the age of a house could be told was by these Florida's coins that were put in. That's you could, true, you could check with the, the year, year of construction. Yeah. Um, and another way that the age of the house sometimes was told was by the amount of, of, say, Bridget's crosses that were held in the rafters. One for each like year. One for each year. Mm. Or maybe then when a new married couple would move into a house, they'd take all the old ones out and they'd start putting them up. So you knew you had a certain record of how long a person was there or people were there for. Um, but these are things as well, these basic kind of symbolic concerns that deal with, again, it's like you have to think of the, the functionality of folk tradition, that it's not this this kind of broad... Uh, wishy-washy kind of kind of uh, notions, whatever. That these are customs and practices that are are trying to deal with root concerns and senses of um, welfare, human welfare, and to banish misfortune and so on. And that still that is a constant concern, even in the modern age. I've some material here from fieldwork that I was doing in the last couple of years in in Dublin's south inner city, and this is a family talking about um, uh, in a block. They live in a block of flats, mm-hmm. and so in those flats. Uh, they still would have these same kind of items. So this is, is in a very urban context, a modern context, and not even in a site where it's it's one kind of home, you know, and a site has been chosen and stuff is buried in the foundation, but in a flat mm. um, up on the, the second or third floor, this kind of block of, of, of flats in the inner city. And there are varying items described and a coin again found later on uh, under the under the, the lino. I'll just play this for you now. And was there anything else that people have for kind of good luck or ways to get rid of bad luck in the flats or do you say we've got now? Do you say we've got a flat pub? Go around four corners in every room, and bless her, and get a bit of coal, coal off someone. Your yeah, mother gave me a bit of coal. I have a bit of coal in my flat. Yeah. I have me salt, me coal, me holy water. What was that I got? My mother, my mother was very And there was an old penny in my nanny's middle room. And when I took up, when I forced, when I was forced getting the flat done up. I took up the line out in the old middle room and there's an old penny in the corner. Yeah, they said bless the four corners of each room and get a lump of coal. Not your own, get it off somebody. Yeah, and somebody else give it to you. I remember the mother doing it all right. Sorry, Johnny. That mm. idea of the coal, mm. do you think, is that the idea of the fire? Yeah, is it, that yeah and it's a very, very, it's a common idea and it's an old idea and you find it in rural parts of the country um, and it was interesting then to find a, a reference to that uh, in a very uh, urban area. Um, in the, like I was saying, in, in Dublin South Inner City. In recent um, years as well? In recent years, I got recorded that in 2016, last year. Okay. Um, so these ideas, I suppose, are particularly old, they're also particularly common, in, given that as well, that they deal with, with these root concerns. 
Uh, and the coal had to be someone else's. So it was often given sometimes as a housewarming gift. Okay. That, that I mean, you might be slightly fuming if somebody showed up to your housewarming party and gave a you a lump, lump of coal. coal. But they have your spiritual well-being at heart. That, that lump of coal is given, so it's from someone else. Okay. Um, or even, you know, the idea, even say in the context of the hearth and the fire, that, that uh, keeping the fire lit or lighting the new fire in the old, in, sorry, fire in the new house from the, the embers old. in the fire in the old house. That that the fire is symbolic of the life force of the house in a way, that it should be kind of maintained. So those there are basic kind of symbolisms, holy water, uh, salt as a preservative or even as a symbol of plenty, um, and, and coal as this kind of symbol of, of And iron as well is huge in folk tradition. Yeah, as often it was something that was buried as well. Yeah. That's true. Uh, iron is generally used as a way to ward off supernatural influence of all sorts, keeping it on you, having it somewhere in the house, um, or burying it under the... the um, under the house as well. As so. many people had the nine irons, which we were chatting yeah, about. Yeah, what, what was the nine irons that I'd heard? It, it's, it's hugely fascinating. I'd never heard of it in our tradition in Donegal, but if you imagine, to kind of give you a visual picture, when I had to go and look it up, Kevin Danner has a sketch, and it's, if you imagine, almost a charm bracelet. It's this oh, yeah, idea yeah. of nine miniature tools made of iron, on, on a chain almost and hmm. people would actually apparently um we've got William Wilde describing a child wearing the seven irons and basically what it is I suppose if you do think of it as a charm bracelet with nine small objects cut and shaped from an iron plate so you've got a cross a plough coulter a ploughshare a shovel blade a spade blade a hatchet a saw and then this little small round disc which is meant to represent a griddle that people would use for cooking hmm. And then we've got a small shoe from a horse or donkey shoe, again, tying in with that idea of luck. Mm. And each one, as you can imagine, ties in with either the agricultural life of the human, mm -hmm. domestic life of the human, and also with the cross, it ties in with that Christian aspect. Yeah. And all of those tools are chosen, again, because of their associated powers, I suppose, mm. in warding off danger and bad luck. And so these nine irons would be either held on a person we've a lovely story actually about big john joyce from galway who is described in folk tradition as being a bit of a hero a local legend mm. who went off and had wonderful adventures all around the world and lived to a ripe old age i think he passed away in 1913 and he always wore the nine irons that his father had made for him at birth because they were afraid that his mother would lose him in, in childbirth so from that very first night where he was born into the world he has carried these nine irons with him around the world and then when he passes away in 1913 it's passed on to his son and I'd be fascinated to know where they've yeah, ended up actually but idea. it's that whole idea of iron as a protection and so as you said you'd see it in the foundations of a house you'd see it kept in a house and again as we go through different podcasts and different kind of calendar customs you'll see iron coming up again yeah, and again yeah. it's it's that's amazing I, yeah I'd, I'd never heard of that and um, and the, the, I suppose as well, like just while you were mentioning that, I was just thinking like the home is the individual kind of, it's the fundamental unit in a traditional sense, the home and in the same sense that in a human sense, maybe the family could be understood as a, as a kind of, as a fundamental unit, again, as opposed to in a very modern context where it's just, it's a kind of hyper individualistic or kind of atomized individualism or whatever. Yeah. But in this context, it's, it's the home is the indivisible unit uh, in which the family is kind of, um, uh, in, in hamlets or whatever and so all of the the practices around this are to protect the family and to protect uh, the, fa the well-being of the family to ensure that there's prosperity that there's plenty that there's material plenty that there's spiritual plenty and that there's this kind of safety from 
uh, supernatural forces or supernatural influences or negative influences at large. Mm. Uh, but it all focuses around this kind of indivisible unit of the home as a kind of um, a vehicle it's in itself for, for the family, basically. That's amazing. I didn't know I thought those... Um, I didn't until we really started digging into it. But that was held on the person as opposed to in the house, or was it hung it, up in the it house? It could be. Um, we see samples of it being in the house, but also with this character, Big John Joyce, apparently Wearing he used it. to carry it with him yeah. yeah, and kind of wear it on him. I shall have to get one. Hmm. It is. I forget charm bracelets. This is the, all, yeah. the traditional charm bracelet. That's it. Um, but yeah, I suppose it's so, so they're kind of the idea of, of, of the burial of items um, and, and having chosen a site to bury kind of, like we mentioned, kind of coins and so on. But there, there's also then the idea in tradition that these are kind of, I suppose, a, how would you call it, that in, in, in kind of across the wastes of time, as it were, mm-hmm. uh, when we go back and look at older burial kind of or foundation sacrifices, you see expressions of, of a different sort where it's not coins or holy medals mm-hmm. or... or uh, those kind of things, but it's it's animals and people sometimes as well. The objects are the watered down version. The, yeah, Much they, are, they later, seem to be. They yeah, kind of supplanted yeah. Um, the traditional, the older versions. What was the the the, the reference? I mean, often where um, a cat would sometimes be be put in in in, uh, in the foundations of a house, uh, buried alive. There is a guy, the the Reverend Mean. I can't remember what it was called, but he's describing in his youth seeing um, uh, a cat. I think it was a cat. You're right in um, Westmead. Is that it? Yeah. Where is it here? Reverend Canon Meehan, the Venerable PP of Keju County Roscommon, was a young man in County Westmeath, and he says that no house would be built without putting some live animal under the foundation stone, a chicken, a kitten, a rabbit, etc. Mm. And and then as well, one of the common things that you'd find, although there are kind of differing interpretations of it, was a horse's skull is enormously common. Mm. Uh, under the flagstone of the hearth, under the fireplace, a horse's skull is often often placed. Um, and that's found in houses. It's also in, so in the context of vernacular architecture. Then also in the kind of in the context of a more maybe uh, classical kind of high architecture European context as well in church buildings and mm. churches that that these foundation sacrifices. There, I remember reading an article about um, a ho- horse skulls found in a church somewhere in the north of England around Newcastle maybe. Um, but this is a particularly common idea as well. Then there are varying interpretations. It was often said in folk tradition that it provided. When, it, when there was this kind of hollow uh, hole under the hearth and the horse's skull in it, that it provided a nice kind of echo for dancers mm. in the house. And sometimes a pot was put under the ground as well. That's true. Um, but that it would pro- kind of provide this, this nice um, aural kind of um, uh, effect, basically, that, that, that was enjoyed, but people would make the sound of music and dancing and so on better. Because that's where the dancing would take place in the traditional home, mm. kind of by the hearth. Mm. Because there's one man who describes it um, beautifully as the second rhythm to a dance, mm. this idea of um, this pot or the horse's skull creating the acoustics to amplify, mm, I suppose, yeah. the dancing or the tapping and the music. In the, yeah. Um, but then Sean O'Sullivan, I think, mentions the idea that these indicate a kind of older conditions, older ideas about sacrifices or the idea as well, I suppose, that, that the land, the site that you've chosen, that it needs to be propitiated, it needs yeah. to be appeased. And by, by sacrificing something to it, you, you appease it symbolically. So by using certain livestock or animals or even people mm. um, in a certain context, human heads have been found at thresholds and under under towers and buildings and so on as well that, that give the indication that, it, that they've been... Uh, put in the foundations 
Um, it goes back to, shall I read the quote from the Book of Lismore about Colm Kill on Iona? On Oron, yeah. This is the guy yeah, who, who decides to have himself put into the, the church foundation. Absolutely. Now, this is mind-boggling. So this is from the Book of Lismore. So I'll just quote here. Said Colm Kill to his household when about founding his first church in Iona, it is well for us that our roots should go under the ground here. And he said, it is permitted to you that some one of you should go under the earth here to consecrate it. Odran, or Oran, rose and said, If I should be taken, I am ready for that. O Oran, said Columkill, thou, ha- thou shalt have the reward thereof. Then Oran went to heaven, and Columkill founded a church by him afterwards. Hooray! Hooray! So yeah, he, he's kind of, he, he is sacrificed into the foundations of the church uh, in order to sanctify and protect it, and to appease, I suppose, the, the space itself. Then there was the idea that that even the hauntings of houses were sometimes the guiding spirit of that had been buried in the foundations, or the idea of certain ghosts appearing in folk tradition as animals in a certain house was that that was the animal that was uh, buried in that place to guard it to guard it essentially yeah. yeah and so that now you have either a human or an animal that that whose spirit guards this space and and um, it's having been sacrificed in, in the in the construction of the house was there something about I read as well but I'm not sure if you want about burying a shadow. Oh yes, I found this actually really, I suppose, curious as I'd never heard it before. Now, where am I? So this is the idea of sympathetic magic, I suppose, as we were talking about, was it last um, last mm-hmm. month? So the idea as as we became apparently more civilised, we drew away from that idea of human sacrifice and perhaps animal sacrifice. And so we're moving into this idea of objects as representing people. And so we have, there's four examples here. So a foundation stone would be laid on the shadow of a person. So say, for example, if you stood Mm. um, by a window or wherever you were and it cast a shadow behind you, a foundation stone would be laid on your shadow Mm. as a representation of you as a human kind of to achieve the same aim. Then also, and this is where our our forefathers and um, ancestors were quite creative. Also, someone might take the measure of you, Johnny, in Mm. terms of a measuring stick or they might use string and then place your length, so to speak, on the ground and place the flagstone over it. There again, representing mm. you, but not actually killing you. So happy just days. As well. Symbolically just as well. being Yeah, right. And the last two things were the burial of an empty coffin, although this, um, again, is more of a... I don't think we have proof of this in Ireland. Mm. But also touching the foundation stone to a person's head and then mm. placing the... Mm foundation stone with the idea i believe that that person would subsequently die thereby actually having the whole achieving the aim of having a human sacrifice even though you're not in the ground yeah so it's this idea of sympathetic magic as again just following on from human sacrifice to animal sacrifice down into this idea of objects as representations objects yeah Yeah. and now again in the context of um, modern uh, hellscape of glass and concrete the people who would who would initiate those buildings wouldn't so much as sacrifice a latte. Not at all. It's it's a different approach entirely. It's it's like the secularization of architecture. Strange kind of concept. Mm. Yeah. As opposed to this is a very kind of symbolic. Interesting way of looking at it. There's a head I was looking at buried under I think the Newgate Tower in Dublin. I don't know where I looked. I don't know where that tower is, but um, in the same sense that just just above a flagstone, there's a head, severed head, skull looking south, um, under the tower. And underneath that flagstone are certain tools and implements as well. That seems as though it's just a kind of ritual, um, again, uh, kind of offering to this site. 
Now, whether, I don't know what the nature of the kind of the person at all, but but certainly when you get into older uh, burials and foundations, there are kind of indications that that humans were sacrificed, and that's really interesting. The symbolic aspect that you describe mm-hmm. the event becomes a shadow or becomes in some way the a person's essence or a picture. Or yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, Although, do you know what I'm very curious, and if we have any listeners in County Wicklow, in Ballinaglen, we have a recollection from Puedigo Tuhul in the archive, and he says that the burying of horses' heads seems to have been a fairly common custom here in the floors and walls of houses or churches to make an echo. I have heard that a large number of horses' heads are buried under the floor of Killamote Church for that purpose. That's when I feel very bold and I want to go digging. Go digging. Yeah, isn't that it's, so... Yeah. If that's true... I know a family in Wicklow who, who had a horse's skull in their fireplace. Yeah, when they were doing the So heads, could very well be true. Yeah, yeah, yeah it, it's, it's quite a kind of... Um, I think it's a relatively common thing, especially in old houses, old farmhouses in the countryside and so on. And it's this idea that when animals died, that they actually kept the head for potentially a few years, knowing yeah. that should a house be built, they could just pop into the old cupboard and... Well, there's, it's interesting then in the context of animals. Another thing that was done, there's in, again in Wicklow, um, Chris Corlett, he's a, the, the archaeologist, published his book, I think of Wicklow's Traditional Houses, a few years ago. And one of the things that you'd find there... Um, and still to this day in certain quarters was the hanging up of calves' legs in the chimney. Yes. Hanging up there. The Kruba. Especially when they had died of a certain amount of black legs, say. And the way to cure the, the farm was to hang these in the chimney. And then if you think about it in a symbolic sense, the, the legs are hanging in the chimney. Even if the smoke of the fire is meant to dissipate over the land in the general area, that in some sense maybe that the cure will be kind of dissipated over the land. Hence this, this symbolic kind of the, these legs were ever being contained in, in, the, in the chimney. Um, there's another house in Wexford, Mayglass, which is the first house in Ireland, I think, to be to be preserved or have some kind of um, protection or some special recognition of it, not on account of any historic uh, event there, although there are many there, but purely on account of its being a, an example of this particularly old uh, form of vernacular architecture. Um, some of our, 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 our colleagues here in the, in, the, in the collection would have worked on it, including That's our director. True, actually. Uh, yeah, who would have worked, worked on the preservation of it. But one of the, the inhabitants had hanging from the rafters, the old man described, um, calves' bits, as he called it, the bits of the afterbirth, oh. wrapped up in paper and hanging from strings. I've heard you speaking about this before, yeah, actually. All, all over the house uh, in order to provide good luck. They were even sent away. Now, when the house was being done up then, these had to be, people were thinking, well, what do we do? Can we leave them here? They had to take them down. They were sent away, I think, for, for um, kind of analysis and some mm. sort of laboratory. And, yeah. I think I'd maybe prefer a houseplant. Houseplant. Which will come to shortly. We, we will, actually, yeah. Do save the horse or the cowbits. Um, one of the things we were going to speak about, well, just before we actually finish that for the sake of completeness, it's foundation sacrifices are known across the world because Sean O'Sullivan oh, yeah. speaks about China, India, Japan, Africa, South America, New Zealand. And we'd really recommend people read about it because there's just such a wealth of information mm. that is hugely interesting and that will keep you reading for hours. Yeah. And again, get in touch if you did want some references, we could point you in the right way. Indeed, yeah, I'll put some, maybe some links under the SoundCloud as well yeah. that people can kind of can get onto some readings. Yeah. And one curious little thing as well, shall we do the crickets? Yeah, and more animals, animals in the, in the house in the indeed, house. yeah. Now I will quote from... So I'll read you this little bit, um, which I just thought was lovely, from 1782 as a poem called The Cricket. So, little inmate, full of mirth, chirping on my kitchen hearth, wheresoever be thine abode, always harbinger of good. 
And that's the idea that crickets in the home would secure good luck for mm. said home. Mm. Um, crickets were a, a happy omen. They were very much so. But that's changed from even just a few references that it's there are mixed beliefs. But for in, in large part in Irish tradition, the crickets were thought of as an omen for good luck and good, good fortune luck, yeah. for a home. You can you can see that with other types of animals or birds or um or cats and things as well. Funnily enough, the, the, the idea that when you as well when you when you moved house, uh, the cat should be left behind. Yes. You shouldn't take I've the read cat that. with you. But what is that? Uh, no, cats are generally kind of malevolent creatures. I get the impression. Yeah. And they were left to starve in the old home. I think they were just kind of left alone, and then varying tricks were employed to ensure that they wouldn't follow you to the new home. But a stray cat that came into the new home, especially if it was a black cat, was was a kind of sign of a, of a happy omen again, a particularly kind of pleasant sign. There's even, this, there's even the phrase um, <laughs> Irish, in, in Irish, uh, God bless all here except the cat, when, you, when you'd enter a house. I see. Yeah, that's this idea of kind of, this, the cat is held in suspicion in folk tradition. I'd agree with that, I'm more of a dog person. I'm fond, I'm fond of cats now, but I, I feel as though... Um, that's yeah, a yin and yang, Johnny. It, it could be, yeah, but, um, but the cat was left behind. Um, and the sweeping brush. Was the sweeping brush The sweeping behind? brush, one recollection says that the cat and the sweeping brush was left behind and I think that ties in with that idea of that you're not to sweep out um, the, yeah, dust the dust as you're kind of getting rid of your luck yeah so in my yeah. mind that's what I associate that that's, with yeah actually I have it I have a it's a handy segue I have a, a piece here that I cut out of the sound archive as well from our friend Matty Seaver again and he's talking about just that the idea of, of sweeping out the dust and how it was regarded it's as, as bad if we luck. had it planned it is, it is that <laughs> uh, but it had to be swept in towards the hearth I think and then Put into the fire, or then kind of swept up. If you were to sweep it out the door, you were, it was, you were symbolically sweeping your, all of your luck out yeah. of, of the house again. But here's um, Matty Seaver uh, talking about that. What about sweeping the floor, sweeping the dust <laughs> out? Well, they, they, that was that was a thing, right enough. They never they never liked to sweep the, the dust out the door. Yeah. They always swept it for the fireplace. Yeah. And take it up and put it into a bucket or put it into something. And bring it away out, mm-hmm. throw it out. Whatever it was always the case not to sweep it out the door. I always saw them sweeping it in from the door. So there's Matty Seaver, basically describing how you should never sweep the dust um, out of the house. Actually, here's an, another section that I have. Sorry, I almost forgot. Um, this is describing it was in County Cavan, Frank McGuire, and it's recorded in 1976, and he's talking about. The collectors just asked them about attitudes to animals. Mm-hmm. Uh, apart from the cricket being particularly lucky, certain animals that if they were to come into the house were regarded as unlucky, and frogs in particular were, were regarded as unlucky. And we'll actually, we'll see that at the end. I have a piece from tradition, a song based on that topic. But um, this is an instance where he, he describes kind of some of the animals, but he comes in and he's been pike fishing and he's using a frog as bait and it jumps out of his pocket in the house, much to the kind of disdain of, of the, the, the lady, the homeowner. Well, did they believe much about birds making omens? Do you know birds clapping against the windows or birds coming into the house now? Did they think it was an omen or a sign of a death or a... No, no, the board, uh, the robin or them would be good luck, but that's one thing they didn't like to see coming out as a frog. Oh, yeah? No. Yeah. Yeah? Well, that's... It, uh... <laughs> I, I, not too long ago... Uh, I used to be fishing in Rolong and I used to get frogs, put them in the hook to catch a pig, you know. Yes. And I got them, to, and I got them to swim. I used to put them in my, tie to put them in my pocket and say, take the pocket. 
And I went in this house and I went on this woman and he said, well, a big fire stick's not in now. She had not believe for all get out, do you see? <laughs> but just, I'm telling you, she, she, she was... She, she, the crater where I'm telling you was... Well, she didn't die anyway. Oh, what did they do with the frog? Try to burn it? No, well, I don't know now. They didn't know. They didn't like the frog. There was no more. That, that comes. Mm. Yeah. They weren't so worried about birds. No. Magpies. Well, one magpie was supposed to be bad luck. Well, of course, chickens maybe left out then. Yeah. You know. They used to like crows. Yeah. Crows. If crows left the place, crows, look as you see crows yeah. building the other house. Yeah. Thought that, yes, sir. Yeah. But they never banished them, or they never shoot them, or were they? No, they said that if you'd attack crows, if you don't, uh, that, that they never done any damage to the people they resided with. Oh. Yes, I. Yeah. Not, not. When we are at it, what about the crickets used to be around there? A rain, used to come rain, and that, you see. To start singing. Singing, rasping. Uh, yeah. Didn't hear crickets a long time, not this. No. Just, uh, no. Well, when they, they're supposed to be lucky. Yeah, something's going to happen on the left. On the left. Uh, yeah. Yeah. That's an idea actually that I've come across quite often with the crickets. That mm. They were lucky in a house, but very unlucky if they disappeared. A bad omen. Yeah. I wonder, it actually reminds me of the same thing was said about the bees in a house or on someone's land. If someone was a beekeeper or had a hive, that all of the news of the home, first of all, had to be told to them. Mm. And especially a death in the family, you had to go out and tell the bees. That was one of the other kind of customs. But if the bees suddenly left the hive, it was a terrible omen okay. in, the, in the home that something terrible was going to happen. Uh, in the same sense there as he describes that, if the crickets suddenly leave, something bad's going to happen. I suppose it's the idea that there's some sort of dramatic kind of um, event in some sense has occurred, something is changing. Mm. Perhaps the, the kind of the birds of the air and animals of the world have a keener sense or instinct of, of foresight or insight into, into events that we're not privy to. And so by watching what they're doing, we can see, okay, Something's, something bad's going to happen here. And that's still yeah. relevant in the countryside, because I would hear people refer to the actions of animals still as mm. to you know the weather, mm. or that there is that, as you said, a keen awareness that we are just not on their level, mm. that we don't appreciate changes that they um, are more aware of. Yeah, there's a fantastic piece as well. I mean, you could do a brilliant amount of material on, on animals themselves and folk tradition as well. But Matty Seaver, again, was listening to this brilliant piece where he's just, he was talking to these two young folklore collectors in 1980. Um, and he's saying that, you know, the young people aren't educated about the instincts of animals. Mm. And he's, he's giving out about this. And he's saying that he's a kind of an awful man for, for kind of watching, looking after the maneuvers of animals and, and okay. learning their characters. And saying that they have an instinct kind of as we do, but that there's an enormous thing to learn from them. But that he, I think he's kind of describing that, um, that the instincts of these animals should be taught in schools, you know. And it's a strange in the sense that, in the one way you could say that, um, if I was to go and meet such an individual, that oh, you know, that I'm an apparently kind of educated person, and yet in a certain context, I'm totally ignorant oh, of those things, you know, of, of these, um, the the kind of apparent uh, these characteristics or the insight that's kind of offered in this context in the natural world, same with animals or plants and so on and so forth. That's a nice segue, actually, Johnny, again into plants because they feature prominently in. The study of house lock, don't they? Yeah, they do. They did one one um, in particular um, since ancient times, since Roman times, was used. Um, what's it called again? It is uh, semper vivum tectorum, which is the tectorum means um, that it lives. It's planted on rooftops. On rooftops. This is the house leek, and this is a plant that um, is traditionally, and we have photographs of it in in the archive here in the collection of it planted on the roof. It's a kind of a succulent basically. 
and it's planted on the, the uh, roof of a house and the idea was that it would protect the house from thunder mm. and from lightning. And it was found in, in Roman times as well. What sort of names is it? It has strange names. Um, Jupiter's beard, uh, Barba Jovis. Jupiter's beard is one of them. And Thor's. Thor's beard. beard. Um, again, in reference to thunder. Um, St. Patrick's cabbage. <laughs> um, St. George's beard is another one. Um, what was it? There's another one I saw. Welcome home, husband, though never so drunk. A strange name. Mm, very strange. Um, hen chicks is another one. That oh, I've heard that one. When I was few, there's yeah. a few different plants apparently they're called that, but this is a plant specifically that kind of that would protect the house from again uh, kind of disasters and of of a natural influence or natural source, um, and that was planted specifically on, on the rooftop. Similarly, then you'd find inside the house, um, even the Bridget's cross was hung over the rafters again, as we mentioned earlier, to protect the house from fire. Mm. And so you see, in a sense, even how the house responds to certain times of the year and festi- festivities and so on. Mm. But um, again, it, it, I remember in 1700 and something, there was a poem about um, the Bridget's Cross. St. Um, Bridget's Cross hung over the door um, and did the house from fire secure. And though the dogs and servants slept, by Bridget's care, the house was kept. So oh, it's like that's the, this, this kind of... The house is safe from fire specifically when the when the fire was being kind of smoured at night when it was being kind of um, covered in in embers and ash so that it could be kindled the next morning which mm-hmm. is a certain kind of skill in its in its own right but there's also the danger then that you know the entire house will burn down at night if the fire kind of it's catches and um, so it needs to not go out but it also needs to not burn everything down a prayer was said specifically to to bridget um, and she, she would typically protect the house from fire while this act was being carried out kind of okay. um, so you have, I suppose, yeah, the idea that of protecting the house from, from natural and supernatural uh, influence that kind of manifests at certain times of the year as well, certain festivities. And we see that very often across calendar custom in the archive, because we could begin in January and move all the way through mm. to December, and there are numerous festivals throughout the year where they interact with the home. Mm-hmm. And it's probably no harm just to um, note a few of them, just yeah, so that people yeah, get a flavour. Yeah, so we have, so as we said, we've done St. Bridget's Day where the crosses would be hung. We've got um, Easter was very common to bless the house with holy water and to hang the um, palms. Then you've got May Day, which we would have covered mm. in episode two, as you would have seen the placing of the flowers on the thresholds and again with the May bush and the May bough. Then you've got, actually recently we had St. John's Eve. So the arrowweed would be hung in the house to prevent illness and disease. Then we've got also on St. John's Eve, a burning sod would be taken from the bonfire home. Hmm. And again, that would be tying in with that idea to protect the fire or to protect the home, sorry, from fire. Then we've got the kalya at the at harvest season or the harvest sheaf being brought home as an omen for good luck to be held. Because they had the last sheaf cut in the field. Mm. Yeah. And then we've got, now this again to me ties in with the crew book that we've come across and the cow's bits. A piece of meat left in the thatch on All Hallows' Eve for luck and prosperity. And this is known as Tegan Yivri. And we have hmm. um, a recollection from Tipperary there. Again, I don't know how hygienic that is. Um, not very, probably. Not very, probably. Mm. Um, then we've got, and this is very well known, although we don't practice it. Oh no, it may be a practice, maybe it's just not in my part of Donegal, mm. so I shouldn't actually say that it's not practiced, but on St. Martin's Day, yeah. where a cock's blood is spilled on the door mm. and in the four corners mm-hmm. on the 11th of November. I, I remember uh, Mick Fortune, who, who, who does a lot of um, recordings of people about folk tradition, you can look at his stuff on, on YouTube, it's a brilliant videos, 
there was um, an elderly woman, I think she was from Wexford, I could be wrong now, now that's his part of the country, but um, she was describing on St. Martin's night this blood being put on her uh, and a hot blood and a cross on her forehead. So this would be kind of put now. So again, you see this kind of strange tension between, you know, this is not the kind of canonical dictates of the Catholic Church mm. at play. Uh, it's a different sort of, um, I don't know, kind of inclination altogether, it would seem. Um, I have a recording of that as well from, from um, one of our, uh, someone who's a hugely influential figure on me here is Dahio Hogan, in Dia Gras there. And this is um, a, a piece of him describing, uh, this is a woman he's collecting from Mrs. Margaret Phelan in 1983. She's in County Kilkenny and she's talking about uh, goose blood being put on the, on the doors and the threshold of the house on, on Martin's night. Used to, they used to observe St. Martin's feast, wasn't yes. it? Martinmas. They used to kill a fowl or something. In the yeah, house yes, St. Martin's and put the blood on yeah. all the doors. Did you see that done, Mrs.? Oh, I did, we didn't that ourselves. But what way used to do it? Mummy talks about that too. <laughs> they yeah. cut a head off, usually a goose would have the most blood. Yeah, yeah. You see, they cut, cut a head off the goose, you see, yeah. and go to all the doors and yeah. put the blood on it. Yeah, yeah. And, that was on and the jam of the door. That would be the 11th of November, wouldn't yeah. it? Yeah. Yeah, you'd bring back those things to me now when you... <laughs> I remember that. That was the 11th of November that night. Mm. There's a curious thing as well. There was the change from the Gregorian calendar um, where where the calendar has actually changed. Basically, we lost uh, almost kind of two weeks, but you'll see this 11-day shift mm. in lots of festivities. So the difference between, say, um, Christmas Day and... Uh, Nolagamon Women's Christmas, Little Christmas, 25th of December to 6th of January, mm. or Halloween or All Hallows from, from October 31st and then Martin's Night, 11 days. And, and the same with May as well. You've got yeah, Shamblau Beltonia. Yeah, guess. what was that? The two Mays. Yeah, we have that in Donegal. That was on the 11th of May then. There was. Yeah, so, so is it the 1st and the 11th? Yeah. So there was an 11 day, we kind of lost this 11 day shift uh, where you see uh, remnants of the old festival as it's just moved in time. Mm. And then, of course, in the context of marriage, that was said, you know, when Lent appeared, you couldn't, you couldn't marry, and so you could still go out to the Skellig, the Skellig the Hill, the island, mm -hmm. where there's a little monastery in this kind of rock in the sea, basically, and they refused to accept this new calendar. So you still had 11 days when it was Lent on the mainland to travel to this island, and it wasn't Lent, and you could technically marry there, you know. Um, but you see that kind of, that changeover sometimes. But it's interesting, yeah, to note how the, how the house changes, and how the requirements change, and how luck needs to be constantly kind of reinvigorated throughout, throughout the year with a variety of used references that are kind of Christian and pre-Christian in their origins and kind of all meld together with people basically using whatever they can um, to, to protect themselves from, from the elements largely. And it's very, as we said at the beginning, it's universal because even for us now, we still observe many of these customs. So when a new house is built, the first thing that's done, in, well, in many places would be a mass is said and the house mm. is blessed yeah. and the rooms are blessed. Yeah. You'll see... St. Bridget's crosses are still very popular. We have them in our homes. I have them in mine and yeah. my, my parents' home. And we would have had um, masses as well in, in my family home growing up, even to relatively recently. My parents moved home not so long ago, but um, before they did, there was, I remember there was a mass in the home. There would have been, over the years, I would recall, yeah, in houses. Um, so there is that kind of, it, it carries on in that sense, mm -hmm. yeah, yeah. One of the things I read that I thought was interesting to my mind, although it's, it's not something that you want to hear, but again, it was just a curious little item that I thought I'd share. From the Isle of Man, we have, a, I suppose it's a curse, really, a statement that you don't want to hear. But one of the worst things you can say to a person in the Isle of Man is, may the stone of the church be found in the corner of your dwelling house, hmm. which means, again, 
all the words in English make sense to me, but without mm -hmm. the context, you just don't understand. So the writer explained that the church stone refers to the altar stone that a priest would bring to the house to say a month's mind okay, um, yeah. in the past when a person had died and they were marking the month's past or the mm. month's duration since he passed. And so it's basically a curse saying, may someone die in, in your home. Probably. Isn't it? Mm. So we shall not finish on that point, but just to round up, mm. we hope we've shared, and this is just the tip of the iceberg, as is always the case with the podcast, just a flavour of how rich the material we have on house lock is but also the broader topic of material culture vernacular architecture there's so much more in folklore as johnny was saying than simply the popular oral literature aspect that many people identify folklore with and you can learn so much of human history here folklore is always history from the bottom up that's mm. what we always say in our tours and you'll never hear any of this in the official record you won't find house luck in the National Archives, I doubt. And so real human experience is what's captured, I suppose, in these topics and in these themes. And it's something that we love going through and learning more about each month as we mm -hmm. choose topics. And it's something we'd encourage you to visit us to explore further. Can we finish up with the, the um, a piece from the archive? Yes, and before we do that, just so that I'm not blamed for drawing bad luck on everyone, when you enter a house, the very simple... I suppose, little prayer or greeting that people would have used. It's very simply, God bless all here, or Jesus Muyadiv. That'll do. Which I think isn't asking, I suppose, a lot. No, it's a fine way to do it, yeah. Except the cat. Oh, well, except the cat. So Jesus Muyadiv, Hawaiian cat. That's it. Now we're doomed. Now we're doomed. actually on the topic of animals again, or unlucky animals. This is um, a song by a fantastic um, uh, channel singer, Padre Camavon. Um, a singer from uh, Galway, from Connemara in Galway, in the west of Ireland. And uh, this is a song called Hour on the Frog, the Frog's Song. And I heard Pollard explaining about this song um, where, I think it was, I can't remember exactly, but the, I think a, a frog came into the house while some men were playing cards. And again, this being a sign of bad luck, the frog was put out, came in several times. And so afterwards, in response to that, the gentleman who, was, who, who kind of was in the home or whatever at the time, composed this enormously fanciful song uh, where the frog appears in the house but it's dressed in, in a, a kind of suit of armour okay. and it goes through, it lists all these things like that a frog is actually a merman and he mentions the banshee, he mentions these kind of old battles uh, through history that compare nothing to the fight that these two men had where they're cutting each other to the bone with these swords and stuff like this so it's this kind of, it's like a slightly fantastical uh, a song that references kind of house luck in essence but uh, to bring together I suppose some of the last bits and pieces so I hope you'll enjoy that and we'll catch us next month we'll see you next time indeed. and may your domestic dealings be lucky until then fortuitous indeed right so <laughs> Good.
Son Say, glister,